This episode of the Cinema Sideshow podcast is pre-recorded, and I'm currently in the room by myself because Jake's been actually really weird recently. Oh my god, he's coming in! Oh my god, he's coming! Oh my god! Here's Jakey. How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 50. Whoa, that's it. 50. Crack on half century, baby. We did it. Congratulations, sir. Congratulations, We're not quite Zeke. one yet, but we're on our way. We're almost there. So, how are you, bud? I'm good. This is uh, this is kind of weird. We're in pre-record territory now. We are, yeah. So, we just came off Star Wars last week. Yeah. And uh, who knows how that went. No, it's... <laughs> We'll find out, I guess. No, well, for those who may have not listened to our Star Wars episode, we talked about it last week, how uh, the next six episodes of the show started with this one, so from mm-hmm. 50 to 55. Uh, Zeke, you're traveling. I am. I'm in Canada right now. Canada. So, obviously, we want to always keep our weekly deadlines afloat. We so won't miss we... a week. No. So, uh, so we yeah. elected to move into six pre-records. We can assure you all six of these episodes are just as good as the original one, well, the, the live ones. Maybe even tighter in some ways. In some ways, yes. Um, we probably should brief the slight format change that we undergo yeah, for these absolutely. six weeks. Um, obviously, we can't do the what have we watched this week segment, which is often the one that I open Jake it's, with. Yeah, it's the, the more contemporary sort of part of our podcast. Yeah. We, week to week, we give our little updates. Same with the career updates, I guess. Exactly. That's like a weekly input. Kind of got to put that one on hold, but that's okay. We've elected to alter that format for these shows. Mm. Um, this one obviously comes at a very opportune time. Indeed. It is the 30th of December. Right at the end of the decade. Yep, right at the end of the decade. And a lot of uh, you know people out there are talking about the films of the decade, which mm. they absolutely should be. Because by the time we get to the next episode, we are in the new decade, Jake. Ooh, 2020 vision. That's trippy. Um, and so obviously Jake, you proposed an idea, right? So for this, uh, first of six of our kind of new fun little intros, we're going to experiment with, I want to talk about our favorite films of the decade. Mm-hmm. So we've both quite extensively in our own time. So mm-hmm. we don't really know each other's list all that well. No. And I imagine they're going to be distinctly different. Ooh. Okay. Um, distinctly we, think to, we seem to have relatively similar tastes, but I'm sure we have at least, I'm going to guess, so we're going to do our five favourite films of the decade, and then we're going to talk about some of the more honorary mentions. Would you like to do the honoraries first? Actually, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that first, but my guess, my mm. prediction... Out of the ten? Will, out of, we going... Well, let's say out of the main five, Okay. that at least two of them we have the same, which is a bit ballsy. I'm only going to say we're going to have one the same, mm, okay. um, but out of the ten, I'd say we're going to have two. Okay. Um, I'm gonna say three. I'm gonna say three. Okay, so you're you're. I think these are gonna be quite different. Um, so if you don't mind, I'll kick us off with Absolutely. our honourable mentions. The honourable mentions. Uh, Logan. Oh, nice. Um, obviously, I think I've talked about throughout the year mm. how much I love Logan. That's a how good much one. I still think it's my favourite superhero movie. It is the only superhero movie on my list. So sorry if you guys have more on your list. I, I think I have zero. But it's a, there's a bit of a variety. Yeah, but so. it's also the one that's least like a superhero movie. So, 
there you go. <laughs> um, don't really need to say much about Logan. I've talked about it a lot throughout the year. So right. uh, I'll throw it over to you, Jake. That's one of my honourable mentions. All right. Uh, are these honourable mentions in any sort of order? No. 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 Okay, same for me, not in any particular order. Uh, I'm going to go with Nightcrawler. I, so. I do not have Nightcrawler oh, on my okay. list. So we're, we're on Although it was in my short list and got eliminated. Right, it got eliminated. There's a couple that once we elected to do only five honourable mentions, we got rid of a few. Yeah, but, I had uh, I had ten honourable mentions originally, damn. so I had to cut a lot. Um, keep it tight, sir. Could I keep it a tight list? Nightcrawler, great film. Jay um, Hall. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just I love the uniqueness of it. I love how kind of dark eerie it is i haven't actually seen it all that many times i think i've seen it once or twice uh but jake Gyllenhaal's performance is amazing it might actually be the first film i've seen with him in it that's crazy to think which about. is crazy because obviously you got brokeback mountain the more recent spider-man um uh, i guess he went to do on uh what's it called i almost said blue velvet that's not the one i'm thinking of uh velvet buzzsaw velvet buzzsaw that's the one i'm thinking of that's obviously with the same director i believe uh, sisters brothers was this decade so, oh, too? yeah his sisters brothers so you he know, just pops up every now and again donnie darko which i actually haven't seen yet well so, i mean that was in mid 2000s that was back yeah yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah but um he's obviously kind of exploded a bit i think i think uh nightcrawl is probably his second so or, let's say third jump of exposure because Brokeback Mountain probably would have been his second after I Donnie would say Darko. So. Um, and then I think Nightcrawler's the third boost, which kind of got him to the status. Yeah, like, yeah. Now. I'm pretty sure he did Nocturnal Animals, which I watched, which I wasn't a huge fan of. Okay, but uh, yeah. Well, he, was that like a big jump though in his career after no, doing that? Yeah, no. he does. He keeps it relevant. Like he keeps to art films generally. Yeah, no, he's a he's a busy man. But I I just love Nightcrawler's originality and how dark it gets, and I love the ending. Without spoiling, I love. The, yeah. the dynamic that's, he has with his That's assistant. one of those films. I know it's been, I think, came out in 2014. I still don't generally mm. talk about the ending that much because it's like, it's not a long film. Um, yeah, it's a nice, tight, tight. I think it's under two hours. I think it might be 100 minutes. Yeah, but, it sounds about right. Um, it's attainable to watch really easily. I think mm. it's on Netflix. So it's like, go and watch it if you want like a good thriller, <clears> like a drama me, thriller. Yeah. So definitely would check that one out. Uh, back over to me, Hounds of Love. Nice, okay. Which I... I It's a local film. Yeah, I've talked about quite a bit, local Perth film, but Mm. it's one of those films that I've watched, I think, four or five times Mm. since the first time I watched it, maybe two years ago. And this is not a fresh... Two years ago? It came out in 2018, pretty sure. Yeah, what was it in 2019? So I guess it's almost two years ago. I think, because I watched it with you, it was like your second time watching, I think. Oh, and that been. was only like last November or something. Okay, so, so maybe the last year I've watched it a lot. Yeah, but I've had three or four revisits to it. Really good thriller. Really good. It's yeah. one of those films that holds up. It's. I mean, it's, this is just my honourable mentions category before everyone jumps the gun. Um, <laughs> On the favourites. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, basically your top enjoyable, ten. About. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, I think I I really ironed out my five. And my my honourable mentions are a little bit more interchangeable. I'm sure there's something I've missed with it mm. because let's be honest, we talk about ten years of film here. Yeah, um, there's so a lot to get through. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely was up there, um, and uh, yeah, I really enjoy that film. So nice. That's a really great pick. Uh, let's go back to me. I have on here. Man, I'm really glad I remembered. This was the one I remembered like just the other day, and I was like, oh my god, this needs to go at yep. least in the honourable mentions. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I had Dawn on my shortlist. Oh, man. It. 
How good is that film, though? Great. So for those who aren't as familiar, this is the middle point of the recent Planet of the Apes trilogy. I'm really glad you put it on there. It's like it's really nice to see things that were on my shortlist that I cut that still made it into this, this right, video. Right, yeah. And I'm curious if we have any Nolan switch and swaps around because um, I feel like that might this be one true. that kind of borders on the on the cutting list. But yes. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is... I, I remember the, distinctly the first time I watched it. It was the first... I think it was the first ever Apes film I saw in a theatre. And I'm, mm. I watched the one prior with James Franco, and I was like, oh, this is actually quite good. I liked it. And I think from there I watched all the originals, going back to 1968 mm. and then going from there. And I really loved the original a lot. Um, and there's some creepy-ass shit that happens in some of the sequels. But to go back to this one, uh, the groundedness of it, the fact that this just really feels like a post-apocalyptic world. It's a great sequel. The, the acting, especially with the apes. Like, oh, the yeah. apes get more screen time than the humans, it feels like, in this. And it, it's well-earned because yeah. the performances and the technology... The CGI is insane. No one talks about CGI enough in these films. It's, it's like, impeccably good. It's really good. I really like the dynamic between Andy Serkis, Jason and, Clark, and right. Gary Oldman in that film. And even even within the apes themselves, the guy who plays... Um, I'm forgetting the name of the ape, but he's the one with the scar on Cobra. his face. Cobra. Yeah, Cobra. Cobra. That's it, Cobra. Cobra. Yes. That's oh, so good. It's only because I quote is... that movie probably yeah. the most out of any film. <laughs> it is fucking awesome, that film. Yeah. Um, so I have a documentary. Oh. Because um, this isn't limited to just cinematic oh, I films. think I, I think I know what you're going to say. Uh, Tower. Called it. Yeah. Thought so. Um, I talked about this one also in the last year. Watched it the last year. It is a masterpiece of a Whoa. film. It is pretty... Okay. It mixes the perfect line between, uh, well, it's solely a documentary based on human accounts of the day. Hmm. Uh, there is no person in that documentary that is a historian. Everyone right, yeah, because it it's recent enough. Was yeah, uh, but it's like everyone they they put it in a way, the way they wanted to tell the documentary was almost in the format of a film or an animated film. Hmm. Um, and they didn't want to tell it with someone who was talking about someone who didn't know the gunman who tried, like, we're trying to get a psychological profile on someone we never met before. Right. Well, the character's very much, like, almost a non-character, the, the killer. Yeah. We know nothing about this person, We are really. solely talking about the victims of the killer. Mm. Not a single one of them, even up until the last moments, talks about him as if they knew him. We don't get, like, his parents on the phone no. or anything like that. No. And that's a really interesting angle when you think about that to take that documentary because a lot of killer, massacre, murder documentaries, those murder mystery docos, always have some historian trying to account for them or right. some psychologist trying to give a psychoanalytical profile to try and justify or parents giving the account mm. of what the kid was like before they did the act. What led up to this horrible thing they did. Exactly, yeah. whereas this one is, no, this is an account of a day and the people this person affected because mm. of his act of hatred and insanity. And it's perfect. It's really good. It it's a really interesting um, pick that you made because I definitely wouldn't have put it in my list at all. And I remember you recommending this one to me and I watched it and I was like, yeah, I, I dig it. I like that. Yeah, you're right. The whole thing's animated. Yep. Uh, even the, the piece to camera interviews are like rotoscoped and yep. there's an element of that sort of style they're putting yeah, into it. Yeah, they rotoscope like, yeah. to look more like the people they were Right, the yeah, their past not their, selves. <laughs> not their present selves, yeah. Yeah, so I, I appreciated all of that, but I didn't necessarily 
consider it a masterpiece like you would. Yeah. So that's an interesting one to put in there. But I'm glad a doco made it. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, docos get shortchanged a lot in the film community <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I'm just annoyed that fire is not going to be touched whatsoever at the Academy. That come out this so. year? I'm pretty sure, 2019. Crazy. Yeah, but... Um, oh, I'd, well. throw, I'd throw fire and Jim and Andy up in... Oh, yeah. Up, up in the, the stratosphere. But th- those all flew through my head. But when I said, I think I know what this is, I knew you were going to say Tower. Because that's yeah. the one that you ultimately come back to, I feel like. Cool. All right. Well, I'll do... Let's see. Which one I want to mention? Uh, let's go into Whiplash. What, do you, what are you laughing at? Uh, whiplash. <laughs> uh, Was it on your shortlist? No. It's in my top five. Oh! So, damn. Um, yeah. We let's let's get into it later. Yeah, let's get into it five. But Whiplash would be one of those, and another one of my shout-outs would be uh, Boyhood. I don't, oh no! Also in my top five. Oh my goodness gracious <laughs> me! All right, well I've only got one shout-out left. Let's see if this uh, cracks the egg. Uh, I want to talk about Inception. That was on my shortlist and got cut. Right. Okay. So. Well, Inception. Uh, I it was between this and Interstellar for me in my mm-hmm. uh, sort of. Um, highlights. I ultimately went for Inter- uh, Inception because mm-hmm. I think the concept around it is just so much more unique and interesting. And I love Leonardo DiCaprio in it, and the cast all around is great. But just, it's not as complicated as people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. The film is actually quite, like it's it's literally layered in terms of the dreams and the dreams and the dreams. But I just think the uniqueness and the style of it really stands. Out. I think I think it's Chris Nolan. I don't want to say at his best. But it was the perfect film to do in between Batman films. Well, obviously those were exposing him in one way, and then uh, Inception exposed him in another way. And I think that came out really early, like Some great visual effects. Oh, it's, From, it's gorgeous. And then a mixture between visual and physical mm. effects. Like there's something about him, and it's like it's a prime example. It's a, a director that now is entitled to these really big budgets. Mm but only uses visual effects when he 100% needs them. And there's usually some realistic, grounded element to those effects that he does them on camera whenever he can. Yes. Or even in Inception, when the when the room's rotating, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in that fight, that's a real room, room. Ro- ro- uh, rotating. Jesus, yeah. I can't speak. Yeah, it's on a that's, cement truck mixer. Yeah, it's the, the Nightmare on Elm Street effect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's really good fun. Fun film. I don't think it's like... Mm. Like it's not from a, a story film. point of view, it's not one of his stronger films. I think. Okay. Um. It actually is one of his more fun films. Like it's not as mm. intellectual as probably the film that I'm going to talk about that he did in this decade, which right, I feel okay. like is a bit more grounded in its. Like, well, there's two that there's, in this decade that I feel like were made more grounded in their, whether they were grounded in their real historical event or right. their science fiction. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, I'm yeah. curious which one of those two you would have picked. Did, yeah. Is it your highlights? Um, no, one of them made it into my top five. Okay, wow. All right, well, uh, um, that's all my highlights, so we can go into the rest of your highlights. Okay, now, I, feel I like. only have two. Uh, uh, Isle of Dogs. Nice. Got to chuck a, chuck oh, a cheeky West in there. That's a good one. Um, I love this film. It's a fun film. It's a heartfelt film. Its animation is just... Ridiculously good. So good. So good, man. But, um, yeah, really enjoy the film. Enjoy the cast. Enjoy the performances. Brian Cranston, big shout out. Good stuff. Oh, he's so good. That's Chief. 
Uh, yeah, no, I really enjoy that film. And then, of course, uh, another Australian film, Mad Max Fury Road. Oh, fair enough. I really seen it. strong three-act structure and much to the dismay of certain opinionated <laughs> tutors of old. Uh, this Back film is really now, yeah. tight and it's better than all the other Mad Max films. It's good. Fair enough. And it may not be a Mad Max story as it's much a Charlie's Theron story as... um. Because that's the whole thing. He's kind of more a side character to it. Yeah, that's certainly what I've heard. Um, yeah. Doesn't matter because they both actually go undergo an arc. She's just more the catalyst of. He's actually the catalyst of change, to be honest. Um, but it's a really fun film. It's a mm. tight, tight film too. It doesn't overstay its welcome, nice. and it's adrenaline. It's kind of fun. Uh, I remember quoting it a lot when it came out. <laughs> it's in the same as Dawn. Right. So well that that um in the same school of thought as Nolan the 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 effects in that film are quite like there's a lot of CG in it but they're quite well done with real effects on top yeah. of that yeah exactly yeah so uh do you want to move into our top fives Jake? sure now for my top five I haven't necessarily ordered them in any way shape or form mm-hmm. uh, have you ordered yours I have but I would say that honestly my or I'd say they'll all be relatively interchangeable. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but I do think I'd stand by the film of the decade. Right. I think uh, out of my five, I think I do have one that I could pretty easily say that's probably my number one. Okay. So I think we're both on the same page with that. Cool. So let, uh, let's save our num- definite number ones to the end. Beautiful. Uh, so, yeah. Do you want to go first, then? I do. Uh, drive. Drive. Very nice. I love Drive. Drive is great. Um, I thought about this. I was like, how am I going to put Oscar Isaac in my top five? (laughs) Um, No. uh, Honestly, Drive is one of those films that every time I watch it, I enjoy it. It's gritty. It's dark. It's entertaining. And Mm. it's honestly, it's been much like Wes Anderson, Edgar Wright, and like we were talking about last week on the show with Tucker. No, no, two weeks ago on the show with Tucker with Titi. Time goes fast, Uh, man. Yeah, I think that that sort of was more the inspiration for a lot of people's gritty drama, uh, contemporary gritty drama films. Who directed that again? I can double check it. Uh, I feel like he has like a weird name. I'm going to guess kinda... it's... Uh... <laughs> for some reason I want to say Alexandra Payne, but it's definitely not an Alexandra Payne film. <laughs> Nicholas Winding Riffin. Right, gotcha. I, I imagine it's Winding Riffin. Ah, uh, I see, I see. Who... Yeah. Has done a couple of other films, but not seen any of them, unfortunately. Okay. But, um, yeah, really enjoyed that film. Uh, yeah, back over to you, buddy. I, I would put it in the same oh. vein as Tower for me, where I appreciate a film. I don't think it's a masterpiece, per se. Um, but I, I think that's a good pick. Yeah. I like that. All right. Well, again, going in no particular order, let's go with... I'm going to say this because I know Zeke's going to be very angry at a couple of these picks, so I'll just get him out of the way. I'm going to go with Swiss Army Man. Ooh. This is one of my top five of the decade. I first saw this film. This is probably my only film on the sh- out of these five that I watched while we were doing the show. Yeah, uh, and I think it came out twenty sixteen. And I've always been intrigued ever since it came out. I've always been intrigued the idea of Daniel Radcliffe as like a dead body. That whole gimmick thing that I was into. And I finally watched it on Netflix earlier this year, and I I watched it once, and I immediately was like, "This is phenomenal." Mm-hmm. I love sort of the messaging it goes about the personality being weird and how weird are we allowed to be in front of other people? Yep. The quirkiness of 
just the ideas at play and how, all the fighting and erection jokes and the the whole soundtrack is them doing acapella, but half of it's like in the world of the film, so they're singing while they're doing their thing. All these like strange, weird ideas with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe and directed by the Daniels. Mm-hmm. So a lot of Dan's going on here. And I just figured it all kind of culminated to this amazing thing. It was one of those things I told you. I think it was like, gosh, I had to guess. I was like episode seven or eight that I watched. It was very early in the show. And I talked about how I was just so appreciative that a film like this exists because yeah. it's just ridiculously unique and the storytelling is just so fun. I uh, cannot share the same sentiment <laughs> with this film. I had nothing. I had no opposition to the film. I thought it did some really cool things, mm. but it had some also weak elements to it, which I just didn't. Agree. I recall you not liking the ending. The very ending much. is the big one. Yeah, the ending is probably the strongest uh, I felt about a film. Like that was my strongest negative that I pulled from it. I thought the ending was a little convoluted, confusing. Um, I didn't quite understand it. Particularly, I didn't know if he was dead or alive, or it was in his head, or it wasn't in his head, or whatever. I let him go away, and then he meets a girl. It was a lot of really confusing stuff. I didn't know if he just got lost in the woods, or was he stranded on an island, but he's on the other side of the island. He doesn't swim away from the island. (laughs) He's still on the same island. Right, right. I I never got confused by any of that. I always thought it was... I don't want to say it was clear because I agree it wasn't the most clear explanation. Yeah. But I never, I always came out of it thinking, I think this is what happened. So what like, do you I think was, happened? Well, I don't want to get into like spoilers or anything, oh, but sorry. I think I think it was all essentially real. Yeah. And I think the whole role that the secondary character plays in the film is very much those. Uh, he's there in a time of need. And it goes back to the title, Swiss Army Man, mm-hmm. as in it's this tool that has helped him get through this journey. Yeah. And I think it's, from a reality point of view, I think it all actually happened, even though it's a bit weird. It but, is a bit weird. Yeah. Um, so that's Swiss Army Man. That's my the top five right there. And I had to order it online and get it on Blu-ray because it's very hard to find in stores. But that was fun. All right, Rosie, well, I'm going to throw it back to you. Well, uh, I'm going to move into Boyhood. Now, hey. so we could talk about boyhood, because um, you brought Top it up in your five of the decade. Yeah, number four. Uh, this is uh, obviously Richard Linklater, which we've talked about a lot on the show. I'm a big a fan of his man. work. Yeah. Uh, this film is awesome. This, this film is exactly what this film needs to be. It has some great performances, particularly from uh, just remember for Ethan Hawke. It's the mm. one that really sticks to me. And, of course, the boy in boyhood. Just the concept of the film, following a chart, like having a film take place over, I think it's 12, 12 or 13. Years, yeah. yeah, 12 years. And it's the same kid. So Pretty impressive. It's a feat that is, yeah, it's wildly impressive. And it's at some points it could be a little, like, over the top, but it needs, I guess it needs to be, because what it's trying to do is it's trying to encapsulate... That film's trying to encapsulate a fragment of, I think, every man's coming of age. Yeah. Not the whole, but some of the parts. So I think there are bits in there which you, as someone growing up with the film, because mm. the film came out in 2014, um, for any young men watching that film, there are different as- like points of contact with yeah. that film. You could... If you're watching a 16-year-old, there's there's a scene in there for a 16-year-old. If you're watching a 14-year-old, uh, there's a scene in there. Yeah. When we were watching it, 
we were 17 if we saw it when it came out. I think I was 17 when I saw it. I remember he ends up older than me. Yeah, and I wasn't up... ready to go to college when he was that kind exactly. of thing. But it's only it's only the the small to distance future. Yeah, yeah. Particularly this dynamic of uh, I think the film just touches a lot of personal points for me. Mm. But I think it also best part is it it walks that fine line between being a contact story for people more more than others, but at the same time there's still always something in there for mm. everyone, including the other gender. Believe it or not, even though it's called boyhood. There's plenty of stuff regarding single motherhood, single fatherhood. The sister characters. The sister characters. Yeah. So there's a lot of points of contact. So I, really... I do agree with you on a lot of that. I do think the balance with, um, obviously, you're telling this six, 12-year-old story, um, or a story that spans 12 years of, of a boy's childhood, and you're right, it's, it's very focal on the, the boyhood of it. Yeah. So it's not... A 50-50 general ratio. I like that it's six to... No, this is a boy's coming-of-age story. Yeah. Even though you're right, there's a bit for everyone in there. And I think that's such a challenge is to... How much of it is like a personal story versus the traditional beats of like, you've got to lose your virginity at 16 and you've yeah. got to do this and at 12, I, I you think, know? I think there needs to be more attention on uh, interpretation. Getting, walking away from the film, I definitely felt like there needed to be more interpretations on male identity Mm. because although cinema for the most part has been dominated by the male perspective and it's been a male dominated industry there aren't a lot of films that talk about masculinity in that Mm. way talk about they always i mean that's where the framework toxic masculinity came in and i think this film it's not trying to be it's trying to showcase all aspects of masculinity including toxic masculinity but not exclusive yeah it's taking it's it's that is an aspect of what it means to be a man, but it's not everything about being a man. And I think a film like this, we don't need forty six of them, but <laughs> like what has become, which has been the argument that we've had between a lot of things like Lady Bird, you know, Love eighth, Simon, Eighth Grade, yeah, uh, that coming the age of, of age, 17, and which often, is, they're that, all feminine perspectives as well on that. Often feminine perspectives, often talking about like some form of sexual orientation change. They lose change. their virginity in each of them, that kind yeah. of thing, yeah. Which exactly. Which is fine, but you're right. We're overstuffed with those kind of stories. Whereas this one, I mean, that's a, that's an aspect of the story, but it's not the entire story, mm. you know. Because that's the benefit of being longer. Yeah. It spans longer distance of time in their life. Yeah, it's talking about how, like, the, the world around you basically influences the person you are in a lot of ways. <clears throat> and you could either choose to fight it or embrace it, which this character does both. Mm. Which I, I think that's why the film needs to be watched by young men. I know one day when I have a kid, I'd love to show him that film. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great pick. It's why I was in my honourable mentions. It's more of the, not necessarily the technical part of it. It is a skill in itself, the the length that it took. But yeah. I do agree. Um, that Even though I don't think the plotting of it's so necessarily great, it doesn't matter because that's not what it was about. No. It was about the experience. So, no. yeah, great choice. Um, all right, well, I'll go with my next choice that I think you're going to have some different opinions on. Uh, one of my favorite films of the decade easily has to be Free Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. I think that film is phenomenal. Every time I rewatch it, it gets better and better. I mean, the the script is Would one of the be best. angry that I gave it three stars on Letterboxd? I'm a little angry about that. Yeah. <laughs> it is. I've read that script. Like, Well, first time I watched it in a theater, I watched it as it came out like January 2018, because that's when we got it over here. Just before, it had its Oscar nominations and Friends of McDormand. I think it was the first time I ever saw her in anything. 
and I was blown away by her performance, by yeah. Sam Rockwell's performance and his arc in the film. Um, and it was just that thing where, like, 30 minutes... I love that it just it starts. You have your premise of putting the billboards up, sort of challenging the local authorities or the police station, and 10 minutes in the film, you're past that. You're moving into the next part of the story. Mm-hmm. So it, it has so much time to take off in such interesting directions, and the dialogue is just fantastic. Uh, the Woody Harrison, just his obviously his performance, but his character as well, and sort of what happens to him earlier than you would expect. In it's just like all that stuff is just so clever, and the tone and the soundtrack, like it's all just I could watch it every day, every day. It's phenomenal. I know you don't like it as much. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's not a film that is technically at fault. Uh. It just wasn't one of those films that really clicked for me. Mm. Um, the performances, I feel like I've seen all three of the people you just mentioned. I feel like I've seen them in films that impacted me more. Okay. Um, I'd liked. I mean, I know we're not we're talking about films of the decade, but um, I thought about this in my head. I was like, two of the the shows that stuck with me the most were Westworld and particularly True Detective season one, mm. which I believe came out in this decade. Yep. Gone by, and I mean his performance in that. Woody Harrison, him, yeah, Woody yeah. Harrison and Matthew McConaughey. I think that's my favorite performance from both of them. He beats all their films from the last decade, mm. honestly. Um, beats McConaughey in Dallas Buyers Club, and it beats Woody Harrison in. I, all I can think of the top of my head is Zombie Land, which is probably <laughs> wrong, a wrong choice. Zombie Land too. He's in a lot of stuff. He's though. in a lot of stuff. I've seen him in a lot of stuff, but it just for me that that show that series. But yeah, and I mean Frances McDermott's Frances McDermott. I think I've seen her in multiple things. Some of her Wes Anderson stuff's always really good. But uh, this is and like, I could be wrong. But this is the first time I've seen her in this kind of role. She's oh, always a she's little been a couple of co- nice. Cohen. Oh, like well, she... even in Fargo, she's like the Lucy sort of like oh, naive sorta... cop. I you imagine know? there'd be something else in there, but I, f- I feel like there is. But you know, I've gone on a bit of a Francis McDormand binge, uh, especially with like Burn After Reading and Fargo and stuff like that. And she's never this kind of character in any of those films. Yeah, yeah, she's probably a relatively passive character off the top of my head. If I'm thinking about all of all of her films, she's normally. Swept up in the chaotic scenario, yeah, rather than. But there's a there's a nicety to it, yeah, and a naivety to it, and the the zero of that in yeah. three billboards. I don't know. I, I just didn't. There are little things like I I watched the film with my mum, right? And that's an neither interesting of us want to watch it for parents. Well, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and we've watched stuff that's like MA rating mm. before, you know, and 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 it just for us it's. Not a family dynamic that I ever believed, and that's that. But was that's always... crazy to me that you say that. Okay, I mean it's it's just like most families don't swear that much with each other. I think like naturally. That and... se- when like when you say that though, it's such a skewed perspective. It makes me feel like yeah, because I've seen families with horrible dynamics before. Okay. And the and the fact of the matter is like they're divorced as well, and this or the, this her and the husband are divorced. Like there's domestic violence out there, and there's not even much of that in this film. The kids yelling at the mum, and the mum yelling at the bratty da- daughter. You know, like that. It doesn't speak like beyond what I could see as a reality. Okay, well, I I don't. I think it feels like 
there's sometimes things are just happening in the like like that dynamic doesn't sometimes feels like it's like oh well they all have a shitty like it's basically insert shitty family dynamic because i feel like uh, there's like she's obviously scared because of like this like the whole three boards billboard situation and like francis mcdormand yeah yeah and like obviously she's kind of trying to protect what kids she has left but like particularly the the son right mm. um and obviously that's just like i i for me i just i never quite i, I never quite latched onto it. i really like the sam rockwell stuff in this mm. film and the woody harrelson arc that he undergoes i think it was honestly just her like her side i just didn't didn't clang to it but that's that's that, just... that kind of just blows my mind though because it's a mother but it's a different kind of mother we're seeing yeah, the vengeful mother almost. Yeah, I don't know. I, just, I could, I was... could, I could see my mum doing that. If if one of her children died in this way, I could see her going to this level of relentlessness towards the enemies of the story. But that's another clever thing about the film is that it isn't really the cops' fault, but this someone needs to take the blame in her eyes, you know. Yeah. So yeah, but... I love that dynamic of it. Yeah, I mean it. Might be worth a revisit in a couple of years, but I'd love just... to do an episode on it because this this discussion could be very interesting. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I'll but, be okay um, with okay yeah. with that. You seem very passionate about it, so I I'll protect this film more than I would protect the Last Jedi. <laughs> that's how far I'm going with this that's, film. Uh, I mean, that's not that's not hard to beat. That <laughs> <laughs> no, a lot of Last Jedi protection. Oh man! Cool. All right, well, let's go on to your next um, one. Yeah, so I have. I might as well move into it. Uh... I feel like one and two are interchangeable for me, but I remember watching and we revisited slightly earlier in the show Whiplash. Yeah. Um, now I want to emphasize my one and two are probably interchangeable, um, depending on the mood. But Whiplash is a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, you had it in your honourable mentions. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. Loved it. It's uh, phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a uh, really really cool. Uh, and um, the performances from both Miles Teller. That was the first time I really got to see Miles Teller and see what he could do. I think for me too, yeah. Um, I think he definitely blew up a bit after this, and then that led into Fan Four Stick, sort uh, of. Fan Four Stick, gotta <laughs> love it. But this is also the first time I saw, I think I saw J.K. Simmons in something that. Of this kind, you mean? Yes. Right. I mean, I remember him being... He's Spider-Man he's or the, the J.J. Jameson. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the entire childhood of that. So when he's calling someone a pig fucker, <laughs> it's like... But it's just... It's a great movie. I think the direction as well from... um, What's his name again? Damien Chazelle? Chazelle. Yeah. yeah. His direction... And I think this is his feature debut as yeah, well, which is mind-blowing to me. This is the film that... He wanted to make, I feel, more than the other two, more than La La Land and First Man. Right, yeah, it's uh, his passion. Well, he did a short film. Yeah, exactly. That's like literally shot for shot, and in some cases they use the exact same shots and regrade them from yeah. the short. And it's J.K. So. Simmons too. Yeah, yeah, and he's in it too. So it, it, you could tell that his knowledge of music really played to this film's strength. It's mm. very similar to like the, the Jim Carney sort of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I, th- I. Th- Loved it. This gave me an audible response multiple times. You know, like the that bit when he gets up on the stage and he sees Whiplash. Oh, you're yeah. like, you're 
body just <laughs> shrivels. Gets like, hit by oh the car God. and he stumbles in, blood soaked. That stuff's amazing. There's just so many amazing bits. And I remember rewatching that tempo scene, like the introduction to the J.K. Simmons sort of He's monster. real persona, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's also like uh, the 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 story arc and what mm. it means to what sacrifices you need to, to make win, essentially, or to yeah. be the best, yeah. more so. Yeah, or to create art because art is not repeating what other people have done before; it's innovating on the industry, mm. which I'm sure we'll talk about later in the show. Oh, the film of the week. Sweet. All right. Well, um, very similar to Whiplash in my top five. I would like to talk about Birdman. I've completely forgot, but Birdman, we have one. I forgot. <laughs> um, no, I think very similar to Whiplash in the sense that it's about a, a character who is has this one upset in this case acting yeah. and wanting to be the best at that or wanting to be known for that. And I again, Birdman, very similar to when I watched Free there. Excuse me, first watched Free Billboards in a theater. Yep. When I sat down and watched Birdman in a theater, I was immediately blown away and in the same capacity. Just I knew about the one shot take thing. Yeah. Uh, except I forgot about it when I walked in and then it clicked 10 minutes and I was like, oh yeah, this is that film. And then uh, Michael Keaton's performance is just phenomenal. And everyone's phenomenal. The whole cast, because you've got like Emma Stone and um, bloody... Uh, Ed Norton. Ed Norton, that's it. Thank you. Uh, they're, it's the pressure that they have to nail these one takes and then to be an actor within an actor. You know, it's, it's so much layering. It's awesome. If I was to really think about it, because by bringing up Birdman, you've brought up Inuitu, and then I think to mm, myself, The Revenant. The Revenant. I think I enjoy The Revenant more than I enjoy Birdman. Oh, if I really man. think about it, because there was just so much cool stuff in The Revenant. The mm. ending with Tom Hardy and uh, the dude from—I can't remember his name. He's the ginger dude. He's <laughs> the from ginger, uh, dude. ginger dude from About Time and Last Year. He's General Hawks. Oh, that dude. That dude. Uh, but that film is just sensational. Both of them are sensational. Mm. Um, he's a good director he's a consistently <laughs> good director too but Birdman is just like phenomenal and uh, we used it as our main inspiration for Faces in the I was about to say yeah it was a huge inspiration with our film and another film from that same year Jake mm. um, I have forgotten one before I move into my number one uh, right. and this is my Christopher Nolan Interstellar Interstellar okay this so, is the one I cut from my honourable mentions okay so in co- this is probably the only other performance from Matthew McConaughey I think that would rival his True Detective one. I still think I enjoy his True Detective one more, though. Mm. Um, this is a great film. I remember watching this in the <laughs> cinema. I saw this like three times in the cinema. This I was... think I saw this with the same dude I saw Birdman with in the cinema. So there you go. Yeah. Blew me away. Soundtrack was incredible. Oh, it's amazing. Uh, performances from both Anne Hathaway and... Uh, well, all th- my, like, is, is Michael Caine's in this Michael for a bit? Michael Caine's in it. Uh, John Lithgow was who, in it for a bit. Who plays the daughter again? Like, oh, the adult version of the daughter? She's the chick that was in it, Chapter 2. Oh, that makes sense. The older, vo- the I older could, version. Yeah, not the, not I, could, the... I, I could see the, the, the <sighs> visual similarities there. No, I, I love Interstellar as well. The reason I had to put Inception just above it is because of its originality. With Jessica his... Chastain. That's it, that's it. Um, with Interstellar, as much as I, are you, are, you're right. The soundtrack, and I remember them using like these specific. Uh, oh, Matt Damon, great. Oh yeah, Matt Damon. I forgot about that. That's all. Every time Even, I watch it, it's a surprise. Every time. 
And it's like he was having he was because he had Martians straight after too. I think right, he's, he's getting lost in space every day. Yeah, it was the whole joke. I think yeah, yeah, get, yeah. Getting banded a lot. <laughs> we gotta get him. I just yeah, it's incredible. The science in it was like that was the mm. other thing. Like a lot of sci-fi gets shunned for its science. Um, this one got pretty good. I mean, I know Neil deGrasse Tyson always likes dropping in. That's not real. That's not realistic. Particularly after Gravity came out. Right, yeah. He's very much like, that's not a realistic depiction. And then Nolan's like, hold my beer. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of it he didn't debunk. He was like, no, that's accurate. That's accurate. If that was the rules of that situation, that would be applied appropriately. Yeah. I feel like the thing with Chris Nolan is that he's like a genius who just so happens to want to make movies. What's him and his brother? It's him and Jonathan. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I said Westworld was also some of the best writing of the decade too. Cause oh, did John write some of that? Yeah, and he EP'd it too. Nice. So nice, nice. he was and that first, not so much the second the second season is still good, but that first season, oh, mm. that has got some of the best performances. Period of the decade. <laughs> what a surprise! Anthony Hopkins can act really well. Well, who would, who would have thought it? <laughs> well, I'll go into my next one. Uh, let's talk about the Social Network a little bit. I think that is. Good call. Very, very worthy of talking about. Very early in the decade as well. About time a Fincher made it into this. Yeah, no, Fincher. I mean, Gone Girl was in my cutoff for the... Yeah, Argo and Gone Girl were both in my... No, Argo was Ben Affleck. I know, but like... Oh, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Argo's a good one too. I love Argo to death. So... But with the social network, it's just the preciseness of it. it, Very interesting enough, a lot of um, executive... Uh, oversight in terms of it needed to be PG-13, mm-hmm. so there was a lot less swearing that left Sorkin's script. Uh, needed to be two hours, so even though the script was a, it was 180 pages, the film comes in at two hours and like 20 seconds. on an M, though, I'm pretty sure. Or well, PG over th- here, PG-13, yeah, PG-13 yeah, the equivalent. Sorry, beg my pardon. Um, no, but they, they kind of excelled at doing all those uh, studio note stuff, but also making incredibly clean, precise film with um really fantastic performances and one of the one of the best kind of based in a real world retellings because pretty close to breakout roles for all of the stars in it definitely right? for Army i think Hammer. jesse eisenberg was a little known at this point okay. he, i think he'd done zombieland already okay I but think definitely andrew garfield uh, andrew garfield's a big one uh, justin timberlake even yeah that was like everyone's surprise wow he's good yeah sort of moment. and army hammer Probably too. I uh, I would say so. Be close. Maybe not a breakout, but the first notable performance. Yeah. I would say Call Me by Army Hammers. Probably <laughs> the Army Hammers. Exactly. That's incredible. Like still to this day, I watch that movie. I'm like, how is that the same dude? Like, the effects work is so good. If that, that were, film. I mean, if anyone could do it, it'd be Fincher with that yeah, sort of yeah. Fincher or Nolan, I would back on those. Fincher's always been ahead of the game with the the with the, the digitalized. I mean, he was the yeah. first person to use like digital cinema. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With uh, Zodiac. Zodiac and the backdrops of that and the green screen. Zodiac perfected. was in this decade and probably would have slipped into my top five. That, Man, is a... that film's a little way too long for me. <laughs> so good, though. Um, but Social Network, just phenomenal. I actually rewatched it like several because I've had films running when I go to bed and I just yeah. had it rerunning for like maybe two weeks straight. And I'm like, this never gets old. It's so well, good. Sure, so Mr. Quick. Bet would be happy to hear that you've put social network in Very your... nice. Well, uh, we both have one more left. What is your number one of the decade? My number one. And he had to make it in because I love three of his films from the last decade. Sicario, Wind River, and Hell or High Water. And Hell or High Water is my number one. Whoa. And okay, bring it on. Let's go. Let's go. Oh my goodness. Right. Um, so this film, I came across 
when I wanted to watch... I was in a bank heist film phase, right? <laughs> um, and I also had just watched No Country for Old Men. Right. And this was getting Oscar buzz at the time for Best Original Screenplay and also got a Best Supporting Nod for Ben Foster in it. Yep. Plays Chris Pine's brother. I also... Big fan of Chris Pine. He's my favourite Chris. Um, suck at Evans, Hemsworth and Pratt. Uh, Evans is my favourite Chris. Really? Easily, yeah. I was very bummed to see him in the Wonder Woman trailer. Uh, Chris Pine. for the, Oh, I was going to uh, say. So I was like, oh. I think that's the one thing I actually really liked about Wonder Woman. <laughs> gave it, it gave me an emotional response. Now, uh, if you watch um, Chasing Amy, there's a scene where Ben Affleck looks identical to Chris Evans' Knives Out look. He's got like the exact same sweater and like the way he's like physique. Is it, it, looks, it looks like him. Ch- I've been chasing to watch that movie. Uh, <laughs> but no, um, honestly, this film... Every time I have watched it, I have been entertained. The performances from Jeff Bridges, mm. the the cap like the anti-American capitalist, well, capital anti-capitalism talk, talking about how corporations are ruling over the land, talks Everything. about uh, yeah, talks about the like the infection of capitalism. And it's just it's such a great film. Like it's a really t- and it's a hundred minutes. It's tight. That's a mind-blowing number one pick. Really? Like, I just... That, a million years, I wouldn't have guessed. I mean, you don't talk about it much. No, That's I only think it's because, like, when it came out, I talked about it. I think I talked about it a lot on the Blue Velvet podcast. Probably. Um, there was probably an episode in there where I ranted for a good period of time. I just think there's... <laughs> I think to myself, uh, like, what's a film that I always come back to and I'm like, I'd like to watch something that's, like... Like, all three of them. Like, Sicario, mm. Wind River, and... And a hell of high water. They are all three uh, just amazing scripts. Um, I think Wind Rivers. It was a real toss up between the two, mm. um, and I probably should have thrown the other one into honorable mentions. But so they were all this decade. Yeah, all three of them. Jesus. Yeah, it's a twenty. <sighs> Sicario was still twenty eleven or twenty twelve. Wind River was twenty seventeen, and Hell of High Water was twenty eighteen. I think. Okay. So. Don't quote mm. me on those years, but they're all in this <laughs> decade. I know that. That's pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, I just, I've watched it, I think, nine or ten times in the last two years, and it's just still an amazing film. It's such a tense finale, too. I mean, you've seen the film, haven't you? No. Oh, my Lord. Boy. <laughs> Perhaps, maybe. That's why I said, because I know it, you want me to watch it, but you've like rarely ever bring it up, so I just never get around to yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I think because normally whenever we watch a movie together, it's a premeditated occasion. There's very few times where we it's decide. premeditated, everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we decide a film before we watch it. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, but, yeah, like, I, I admit I was always going to miss ones. I'm really glad you brought Birdman up, because that made me remind myself of The Revenant 2. Mm. I was thinking about throwing Wolf of Wall Street in this list. You know what? I was rewatching that last night. God, so much fun. It's so good. And it's the first time I've watched that film since watching like eight other Scorsese films. So it was like good to go back and be like, ah, so that's where all these techniques came from and this and that. And that's a controversial film too. Some people hate it. Some people love it. But um, I don't get anyone hating it. It's too fun. It's too fun to be hated. Critical analysis people hate. I had the big short that got shortlisted. I really Uh, like the big short, but... Um, it's yeah. fine. Big Short's fine. <laughs> Fair enough. What was, <laughs> what was your number one? My Jake? number one has to be her from Spike Jones. Or it was in my shortlist, but I knew you were going to bring it up. So yeah, that might have to be my number one out of all of them because uh, I just think the tone that the film sets is unlike any other film I've ever seen. How quickly it grabs me and throws me in there. 
the cleverness and the forward thinking of it with the the relationship with the with the phone or with samantha in the film like all of that is just so ahead of its time and and spike jones honed in and really carefully scripted because i think it's the first time that he wrote and directed solely it's also the most recent time he's directed a feature back in like 2013 2014 um it's just yeah it's it's yeah it's just it's so bloody good and i'm sure we'll revisit it sometime (laughs) in the future we do have plans on our little Google Doc to revisit it very soon, actually. So yeah, well, uh, we'll see where yeah, that lands just, in the, the pile, Exactly. I, I hope you'll stay tuned to check that one out. But yeah, so that's it. Those are our favourite films of the decade. Yeah. Well, obviously, for the ones that we both haven't seen or the ones that we disagree on, perhaps we need to revisit it uh, in a future episode. It would be good. I would love to eventually, between us, the top fives, I would love to do them all at some point. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Which... Maybe within the next year or two, maybe. Because that's still a lot, considering all the other films we've got to do over the year. Forever forever a balancing act. Exactly. But But, uh, one we're doing pretty well at so far. We we have been doing pretty well. I think it's time for us to move into our film Mm. of the week, Jake. But what are we watching? This week, for our director's corner at number 50, our 10th director's corner. Oh, my God. Does that mean we're going to be doing a 10 out of 10 director? Ah, ha, ha. Yes. That's exactly what it means, Zeke. Okay. We're doing The Shining. I killed you with Danny. You did this to me. Didn't you? How could you? How could you? Here's Johnny. Jack and his family move into an isolated hotel with a violent past. Living in isolation, Jack begins to lose his sanity, which affects his family members. This film was directed mm. by Stanley Kubrick. Who's that? He's a dude. He's a dude who makes movies. He's a, he's a dude that makes movies. He's probably regarded as one of the best directors of the 20th century. Mm. Um, he's, he is our 10th director's corner. Yeah, um, I think it's very appropriate. I think so too, um, particularly with this end of decade talk that we had in the earlier part of the show. This seems like a very reflective time. Mm. However, I think The Shining was an interesting choice by us. Yeah, so it's kind of, even within his filmography, it's sort of in the middle to later parts of his career. Mm. And the film itself is definitely not my favourite of his. I've only seen a few. Yes. My favourite is A Clockwork Orange. I mean, that film was phenomenal. That, that film was unfortunately one I wanted to scrape in before we did this discussion, but mm. managed to only watch clips from it. Okay. Just to get an idea. So you've done a lot of research for this one. Uh, yeah, yeah. I wanted to really, like, because obviously with the last nine directors, I'd watched enough of their films to have a lot of my own opinions. Unfortunately, right, yeah. with Kubrick's films, I really haven't caught that many. You've what? seen Full Metal Jacket? Yes, yeah. Um, if I like look off the top of my head, yes, I've seen Full Metal Jacket, The Shining, right. and Strange Love. Ah, I haven't seen Strange Love, but I have seen Eyes Wide Shut, which was his last film. Yes, he uh, died as they were doing their final sound sort of mix for it. Someone who hasn't done as many films as you think you would over the period of 
35 years, he's only amassed what looks to be 18 films, which in 30 years, not That's ten. a lot. That's a lot. That's pretty considerable. I think it's... Uh, I, mean, Scorsese, I mean, Scorsese would have done more, but he, I think he's had a longer career than, what, 35 years now? Yeah, yeah. So, so 31, but like... Oh, no, longer than that. Sorry, beg my pardon. His first film looks to be Paths of Glory, which was Wasn't in... it Fear and Desire? Fear and Desire. So that's 53. So actually, it was 18 films over the course of 99. Nearly, nearly 50 years. Nearly 50 years. Yeah. So not as much as actually you'd think. I mean, we think about it, that's one every three years, three and a bit years. I mean, that's like, if you look at Tarantino or um, or Christopher Nolan, if if they if their career went up to like the 50-year mark, that's probably what they're looking at, about 18 yeah, to 20 films. So, yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting to really think about that. Um, I guess it's because he comes from a time where at least films came out a little bit more freak, like directors had more films going on. Like, right. definitely, um, like, in the 50s and 60s, often directors, particularly in the 50s or 40s and 50s, because directors were normally under one studio head, one of the right. big five, they'd get shipped from one film to another film to another film. Gotcha, so they gotcha. generally pick up a couple more in their filmography. But um, I think with Kubrick, he's got that auteur f- Well, I was about to say, he's one of the few people, like, he's one of the people that really gets bigged up in the auteur theory. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Just his pedanticness as well. It's probably why his films take... A while to be made. Oh yeah, I mean this one took five years to make. Whew. From what I, I, I think, Eyes Wide Shut took like four hundred days to shoot. Yes, which is absurd. I watched that film. I don't know what took him four hundred days to shoot, but <laughs> you know. So what was what was your immediate verdict on this film? Um, so the first time I watched The Shining was probably a few months ago. I purposely didn't mention it on the podcast so that we could kind of keep the recording mm. of this vague. But it has been a little while since I've seen it. Um, I don't even remember, actually. It was definitely like a month or two ago. My immediate reaction, I really liked it, uh, considering how huge this film is in pop culture and how much people have talked about it. It was a little... I don't want to say more simplistic than I thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually liked the simplicity. I liked that it's essentially just a dude getting writer's block and losing his shit about it, because I can understand that. You know... It, <laughs> but I really liked it, yeah. It's funny, because... What I took away from the film hmm. is I gave it, I think I finished on Letterboxd, I settled for a three and a half because I enjoyed it, Okay, but, um, and I enjoyed the direction, which I'm going to talk a bit about the direction mm. a little bit into this review. I really am not a big fan of the script and I know it's because, and I'm really starting to notice this more and more with Stephen King films. Nobody likes to do Stephen King's plots. As he writes them. Dude, they're always either convoluted or they make no sense half the time. I'm like cr- right. not criticizing the screenwriter, I'm criticizing him. Because he seems, because he talks about how he produces nine pages a day. But half the time he makes, it feels like he writes stuff that kind of feels like it should have just st- required a little bit more TLC. Because mm. I'm not going to lie, the ending of this film, um, when we get into the spoiler, it confused me a little bit. I was very confused by the okay. end of this film, and I'm I'm really hoping you can explain a bit to me. Um, uh, I I don't think I'm going to be too much help to you, because uh, I also agree it's not very clear. I also think that Kubrick's script, without having read the book, I'm pretty sure the whole fiasco is that Kubrick's version of the film is way different to Stephen King's okay. interpretation. I'm glad so you're here to clarify that. It probably is a different that. ending. Um, yeah. I don't think. Um, 
I'm going to guess then probably the Stephen King, because I, when I was watching it, I was like, mm, I'm not a big fan of this script. Like, I'm really not a really big fan of this script. And it's like, I like Jack Nicholson's performance, but it's oh, Jack he's Nicholson. Amazing. But yeah. it's Jack Nicholson. So mm. it's like, I mean, I've seen already, like, in my life, I've seen already multiple performances with him where it's like, and there's some, like, really interesting sort of things with him and Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda, mm. or Henry Fonda, beg my pardon. Um, and how all three of them were raised up together. The whole thing with Easy Rider is they were three students and they right, made yeah. that film together. And the 70s was a renaissance for all three of those guys for different reasons. You know, Dennis Hopper was doing, like, like he'd be, like, going through the 70s and he eventually went up and did Blue Velvet. Yep. Um, but I think it's like... Nicholson would have done One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the 70s. Yeah. So yeah, and this, this film towards the end of it. I think he did a few others too, just here there and everywhere but right. it's like I, I yeah so i'm like oh yeah the great performance by him but this script kind of confused me and things certain things confused me in my head it just felt like this film was cabin fever gone really wrong well, i mean it, i mean it's definitely cabin fever yes it almost feels like the origin of cabin fever yeah. in that clear concise description but it, you just in my head there, yeah. well all i all i thought to myself was this is just stephen king going Cabin Fever, gone wrong. And then he wrote a story <laughs> about Cabin Fever going very wrong. Right, right. Um, which I feel like that has been a notable thing that I've seen five or six Stephen King adapted novels into films. And a lot of them just have thing The Mist, uh, like, was riddled with problems that I was confused about. Even It had problems and was confusing for as entertaining as even the first one was right. in the, the new modern remakes. It just... Confusing. I don't know about Doctor Sleep. I haven't seen this Doctor Sleep sequel. Yeah, to... I don't really want to see it. <laughs> I don't really want to see it. Um, but yeah, I think I think the thing we're going to keep in mind as well is like I you're probably right about Stephen mm-hmm. King, but at the same time, I say this knowing that these film adaptions, especially The Shining, is I don't want to say drastically different, but there was beef, and you know, and Stephen King famously hates this film because it's mm-hmm. so different from his novel. Well, I mean, uh, from what I gather from the script writing, they basically changed a lot on the days of shooting. Right. Um, and uh, Kubrick has a method of with his scripts that he changes the colour of his paper. Right, Particularly yeah. in this film. I'm not sure if that branches out to his other films, but he changed the colour of the paper to show the differences in the drafts. I think that's kind of an industry norm now. Yeah. I don't know if he necessarily started that. Well, at least but... it was something I've noticed. I haven't noticed right. that in other... I mean, I've never done it, so it was just something the first time I've heard that before. But no, it I think, definitely. I think it's like a norm thing, but I'm, I'm guessing because you would have seen this in the special bonus. Yeah. Behind the scenes stuff that we. I think we both watched it. Which was shot by his daughter. Yeah, yeah. And uh, his daughter presented. Her daughter. His daughter presented an edit, and he hated it because he hates being seen on camera. Because he hates. Okay. I imagine looking You're like a director. Kubrick, yeah. Kubrick, yeah. Um, his, her dad. And uh, he presented one that didn't have him in it. And then mm. they elected to pick her one, obviously, because it's more right. detailed. Well, it, it's so raw in that sense. You get a real raw look at Kubrick's directing style. What The yeah. one that really spoke to me is when he's orchestrating the shot when Jack's locked in the freezer. And you get that nice shot that's looking directly up at him. Mm-hmm. And he's basically on the floor with the camera trying to get the shot. And I was like, I love that you see he just kind of picked it on the spot. The spot, which is interesting. That you, I mean, that comes back to... And I think that that shot has been in a couple of his films, correct? That sort of downward looking up shot? Um, Probably not to that extent. 
extent. Maybe, maybe. I mean, the famous Kubrick shot is like the dead on, the front on sort of medium close up mm-hmm. where the actor themselves has sort of the slanted, tilted head to give them that evil look. Mm-hmm. And Jack Nicholson totally does that in this film. And oh, yeah. I'm forgetting the name of the character in, in Orange Clockwork, but he certainly does that same look. The, the dude who goes crazy in Full Metal Jacket in the first half, he does that look. So it's a very famous Kubrick trick of making your characters look demonic in that way. So would you like to hear a fun fact about this film, Jake? I would like to hear a fun fact about this so film. This film was not nominated for any Oscars, mm. but was actually nominated for two Razzies. I did I did hear about this, and the uh, the wife character... Um, Shelley Duvall. Shelley Duvall, she got nominated she for got, Razzie. And the first time ever they nominated an act. That was the first time the actress category existed. Oh, right. Um, that's baffling. I think that's a little unfair. On her. Oh, I mean, and the funny thing was watching that behind the scenes stuff. Mm. It felt like... The relationship between her and Kubrick. Yeah, and he was... <laughs> well, there was that, but there was also the relationship between her and Nicholson where it was like she was openly expressing how she was jealous of Nicholson, even though I went and looked to her filmography. I was like, oh, what else has this woman done? Nothing. She did nothing <laughs> before this film. Uh, well, she did Brewster's McLeod, Annie Hall... And th- three women. Now I feel like I've heard Annie Hall before, but couldn't couldn't tell you. I mean, apparently it's a really oh, it's a Woody Allen film. Um, so <laughs> she did one really good film, but it's like I feel like at this point Nicholson had built up a huge reputation. Like he was really starting to build up steam as an actor. Yeah. Fact of the matter is, I know Nicholson's name and I don't know her name. And even in the context of then I reckon people would have known Nicholson's name, but not known her name, and like or known it less. Well, she's so, definitely not as as famous as he was at the time, and I think Kubrick cast Nicholson knowing that he was a celebrity or a famous actor. Yeah. So, but again, it goes back to the, the how raw these behind the scenes videos. She's just straight up admitting to, oh, it's kind of sucks that people want to see him more than me, uh, and then it also goes in how Kubrick kind of really skewed the whole crew, cast and crew to to be violent against her. Or mm. to be really mean to her on set, so he could get the performance out of her, yeah. which sort of works. And the whole thing is her walking up the stairs backwards with the bat. Uh, that's authentic tears because mm. she's been overworked so much to do that take over and over and over again. Mm. That that's finally what we got out of her performance. So the whole Razzie thing, I think it's a little unfair. I don't think she's great in every scene. No, there are scenes that are actually <laughs> she's legitimately like. I was like. Because I, I saw it about 30 minutes into the film. Yep. I was, like, reading it, and I was like, he got worse director, too, which I thought was... Wow. Which I think people took a lot of time to get used to this film, um, to see this film for what it was. I mean, I like, yeah. I just, that, to me, baffles me, because mm. I guess we've watched this film hugely recently, like, relatively recently, compared to, obviously, back In then. 2019, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And this film is probably hallmarked as one of the best Stephen King adaptations, I know, obviously, with the beef. Right, right, right. There's a bit of an asterisk next to that, but it's the one that's always brought up. Obviously, the, like, there are very quotable lines in this film. Mm. Um, and for the most part, there are so many things from the sound design to the cinematography and even the direction to an extent are all really good. Mm. I particularly think the sound design is awesome yeah, yeah, yeah i was like blown away by it like as i've seen this you know like the, the awesome this is some one of the first examples of using steady cam which i thought right, was really interesting yeah, yeah 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 um and seeing them do like that very early rig 
with obviously following uh, the kid around. Yep, on the little tricycle thing. Uh, yeah, so that was awesome to watch. Um, but and to see it was one of the first examples of Steadicam was really cool. But the sound design was the, the, the strings and the the horror. Mm. It was one of the best horror scores I think I've ever heard. The sound when she creeps up on on the typewriter. Like unattended, yeah. like the musical cues of that is just like so haunting. Yeah, and it's like I just was blown away. Like uh, the sequences in this film, for the story being, uh, I want to say, real, it's pretty weak to be honest. I'm not a big fan of the story. Okay, but the shots in this, the shots in the maze in the snowstorm, mm. some of those shots with following Nicholson, I was just like, oh my god, that's like a post. There were so many poster right, shots. right, right. <laughs> I want to ask you a question when you watch. Yeah. When you watch this film, what aspect ratio was it in? I'm going to say... No, no, it was in 16 by 9. Okay. Pretty sure. It wasn't it had no black bars. The DVD I watched, and in fact, every Kubrick film that I watched on DVD has been in 4x3 or 3x4, whatever. Oh, yeah, well, it definitely wasn't in 4x3. I right, thought it okay. might have been in a letterbox, like 2.3, 5x1, but no, nah, it was 16 by 9. That's interesting, because I watched, I watched this film in... Is it four by three or three by? It doesn't really matter, I guess, doesn't it? It's a square. The square. It's a square. <laughs> I watched this film in a square. Well, it's, it's slightly and, off square, but it's basically a and square. I was wondering because it was like this for all the Kubricks. It must be some sort of like DVD collection they put out all at once, and they were all. Did you in watch this it on Blu-ray or DVD? Mm, I didn't have it on Blu-ray, yeah. but the I thought that was to do for a while. I thought that that's just what he shot his films on. It must be the way it was exported onto the the disc. Well, it's just back then. It used to be everything that used to be in 4x3 too. Yeah, exactly. Well, I guess the home release for that DVD would have been going to 4x3 TVs. Yes. So maybe that's why they designed it to be that way. I thought it was him trying to get a higher uh, sense of the height more than width of the image because I wrote this thing about Kubrick and every film that I've seen and I think I think this film is the old... Actually, no, I think A Clockwork Orange came out. That would be the earliest film I've seen of his. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know, beat me up, that's fine. But all of his films have such authoritary of the camera and the way the camera moves, especially with the Steadicam you mentioned. Yeah, well, it's it's funny you say that because, like, I even recall Strange Love, which comes even before Clockwork Orange, that's 64 or 68, that's one of them. Uh, And I think I watched that in 16 by 9 too. Okay. So... That's interesting. I mean, I've been watching, I I think now, I mean, it comes back to, I watched this on Netflix, uh, mm. like I was saying to you. Uh, by the way, invest in a VPN, not sponsored by, <laughs> uh, really handy for like getting different regions. Cause Which, what, what Netflix was this film on? Canada. Canada. So. Um, well, I mean, as you as people are listening to this podcast, you are in Canada I know, that's right actually now. pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it was... I got a 16 by 9 version. Interesting. So. It must have been the... Because, de- again, these films are filmed to be shown in the cinema. Yeah, so exactly. So he wouldn't have done... If, if someone shoots in 3x4 now, like mid-90s, like the Nightingale, those are just creative choices. Absolutely. So. Like, um, I mean, it comes back to how many films are really old that you own on Blu-ray, but they're 16 by 9 now. Yeah, exactly. Like, I have the third man from, like, 19... 19- 46. I'm pretty sure it's in 16 <laughs> by 9. Yeah, they just change it to widescreen. I think screen. every Blu-ray will be 16 because the idea was it's a flat screen TV by then. So Yeah, exactly. I'm sure they put them all. So, but to go back to his use of camera though, yep. I the way again, the authoritarian of the camera, the wide angles of like the tracking shots around the hotel and I was about to say there's a lot of wide angle stuff here. And it, ultra wide angle stuff. I think that's just Kubrick's style. I think all of his films are like this. Yeah, I really thought about that. As particularly I was looking that scene where uh God, I'm going to 
butcher their names. I'm gonna yeah, it's been it's been two months since I saw this. I forgot the names. Wendy, I know Jack's Wendy and Jack. Danny. Wendy and Danny when they're walking in right. the maze. The first time we get introduced to the maze, and it's like they're walking. I was like, whoa, that is like that is borderline fisheye. I think wide. I think Kubrick had a specific lens created for him. Mm. I feel like I've read this somewhere. Okay. But and that that's probably what's been demonstrated right there. It was you. yeah, it was really wide and mm. I mean it totally makes sense in a maze. Like I thought that absolutely made sense. It's like you think about more contemporary films, honestly, I've obviously the maze runner springs to mind, but it's like they really don't showcase the gravitas of of the maze. Yeah. Yeah. It's just Trash. <laughs> in the words of Jack Bet. Uh, in the, in the this famous really, words of Jack Bet. This really does showcase the size of the maze. And then, like, there's some really cool trickery shots of that. Like, that bit where, like, Jack Nicholson's looking into the, the maze and he's seeing two little little thoughts running around the maze. Oh, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. I thought it was cool. That was Speaking cool. of two little things, mm-hmm. we have, obviously, they're not actually twins. I'm trying to remember what their names are. No, they're not. You can tell pretty obviously they're not twins. Yeah, I think mean, I think they just became like the forgetting their name, the such and such twins. They're the two kids that get killed, supposedly, right in the the first lot because the whole thing oh, is that right, okay. there was a massacre that occurred. The fi- since you told me like what ten minutes ago that you were confused by the ending, I think I just kind of remembered slash clicked what the ending was. I will I will get into it in a bit. Cool, because but... I really need someone to explain the... it to me. <laughs> Um, I want to talk about some of the more iconic elements of this film. So you have the, um, I guess they're the sisters more than the twins. Yes. Um, which I was a little... I, I mean, you just pointed it out then. They're the ones who kind of died in what, an earlier massacre? Is that... Well, that's the whole thing. Jack Nicholson gets interviewed. They talk about this incident where this guy killed his entire family. Right, yeah. And... I think what's happening there is circular storytelling, which I guess is very confusing in that sense. Yeah, I, I just don't know, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. I, because he's, oh, I mean, can we go into spoiler? Yeah, let's talk about the end a bit. Let's get this all out of the way and figure it out. Honestly, it's like it's an old film, guys. It's a really old film. <laughs> Nearly forty years. Crazy. As um, of two days from now, so 40 years. the ending is uh, Jack Nicholson goes crazy, knocks down the door. Uh... And I think he, yeah, he kills his wife, doesn't he? No, he right? doesn't. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't kill his wife. The wife and son, they both survive, and he freezes to death. Yes. Yeah, that's it. That's I it. I love that shot. Back. That's a really good shot. From Frozen. And then there's the big tracking shot. Now, here's me. There are two or three cuts of this film out there. Yes. The one I watched is less than two hours. Is that the one you would have watched? No, mine was two hours and 20 Ooh. minutes. I okay, think. so you watched a longer version than I did. I think I watched, like, the original theatrical. I think it was. I think it was... I think it was I mean, we're going to get into this with show, shows yeah, in later yeah. weeks about cuts and stuff, which are a pain oh, in the God, butt. There's a few coming up. What was up, it with the there? 70s? They just couldn't calm down with their, like, cuts. <laughs> How many cuts does Blade Runner have? Jesus Christ. Right? Ugh. Um, but, so, you tell me if this is how your cut ended. Okay. Because I think there are different endings. Um, after we see Jack frozen, it kind of cuts to a hallway shot where it tracks into a bunch of photographs. Photo. Yeah. yeah, that's our money. And we see Jackson, a photo from the 1940s? No, 1921. Damn. So I think that's what's going on. There's some sort of circular storytelling where he's the mass murderer. Okay. But does he just come back to life to kill people? I don't know. Then how did he get them there? How did he have a kid? Um, I don't know. See what I mean? <laughs> like, there's just too many, like, there was just too many things that made me go, what? Like, because, like, are Wendy and Danny... But then it doesn't make sense because of obviously Doctor Sleep now coming out. Danny's a real kid. 
he's grown yeah, up now. Yeah, because now he's bloody um, you McGregor. McGregor. Yeah, and it's like he's all grown up, so it's like they're not caught in the loop or anything like that. I'm going to see if there's a very quick Google explained thing about the But it's ending. the fact of the matter, you watched it, and I watched it, neither of us can make sense of it, because it's like, this is around the twist level stuff. <laughs> um, like, he's... Because the whole thing was, like, he has an interaction with the guy that he thought was the previous caretaker right. in the bathroom, only for the... What a great scene as It's well. a very good tense scene, mm. and I really liked it. But then he goes, you're the caretaker. And I, like, obviously that's a double meaning. It's referring to, you think it means, oh, he's the caretaker right now. Right. But it mean, but obviously given the ending, we now, f- we find out that he has been the caretaker since 1921, apparently. Mm. And he's some weird demonic uh, presence. But it still makes little to no sense to me because <laughs> he goes up there to write, he gets a job, he ends up never writing anything, but he still has a wife and kid. And they both know, like, he's not an apparition, but he is an apparition. All right. Well, I found an article from screenprism.com that is a relatively short explanation of the ending. So bear with me while I go for this. So the question is, at the end of The Shining, why is Jack in the photo of the Overlook's July 4th, 1921 party? So you were right. It was 1921. Right. The answer is... <laughs> it just starts with The Shining is an interesting film. And that it is. Uh, at first, it feels like I'm going to skip some of this. It looks like it's just trying to re explain the film. As the film develops, it becomes more mysterious, ambiguous, threatening, and hallucinatory. By the climax, you're left wondering exactly what happened. Nothing brings out that feeling more than the film's final shot. A zoom in on the overlooks. That's not really a zoom in. Is it a zoom in? It's a tracking. No, it's a. Well, it pushes in, then cuts. Yeah, then it cuts closer it cuts. in. Those last like two cuts weren't needed. Jump we cut. could tell who it was. Just I think saying. it's just to really iron at home. Yeah, exactly. It would have been cool if it was just one log push in. Yeah, there's probably a reason they couldn't do that. Yeah. Because, like, even, even Better Call Saul, like, only two or three years ago, they did a similar thing, but even then they used someone walking in front of the frame as, like, a cut point. So there must be a way they just right, can't... you got focus pulling and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. There must be a way to bypass that. Uh, anyway, oh, and apparently, according to this, Jack's head is actually airbrushed into a real-life photo that was taken. So that's kind of cool little trivia there. Anyway, the article goes on to say, so what's Jack doing in 1921? In a film full of ambu- uh, ambiguities, Jesus Christ, my wording, the photograph is something director Stanley Kubrick actually discussed in interviews. His answer not only explains the concept behind the photo, but serves to counter some other theories of what's going on overall in the Overlook Hotel. All right, Kubrick, take us home then. Kubrick says, the ballroom photograph at the very end suggests the reincarnation of Jack. That means that Jack is a reincarnation of a guest or someone on staff at the Overlook in 1921. This uh, co- collaborates? Co- cor- correlates. No, because there's no L's in here. Corroborates. What the? Corroborates. Corroborates, thank you. Jeez, um, this is shows I shouldn't have graduated Murdoch <laughs> University. <laughs> this corroborates many theories, including Charles Grandy, the man who went stir-crazy and killed his family in the Overlook, which Jack has informed about during his interview at the position, was the reincarnation of Delbert Grandy, the ghost butler Jack meets in the hotel bathroom. The Overlook seems to have the power to re- uh, recall reincarnated versions of its past guests and employees. Delbert Grandy tells Jack that he's always been the caretaker, implying the hotel continues to revisit its past inhabitants. He keeps calling back Brandy's 
and uh, Jax offer Jax to offer them a good versus evil scenario, and they choose evil. A popular conflicting theory is that the photo is effectively a collage of all of the guests that the hotel has claimed over the years. When Jack dies, his spirit gets absorbed into the photo, and thus is now part of the hotel's history. Even though the reincarnation theory comes directly from Kubrick, the absorption theory is still plausible. Either way, the end result is Jack becoming part of the hotel. Whether he's on a list of victim, victims or a reincarnation, he's doomed to be stuck within the walls of the Overlook forever. Well, I'm going to go with the Kubrick one on this because it's coming from the director. <laughs> in our director's Even corner. though I legitimately think the other version, the absorption of victim, mm. is actually a way better choice. It makes I mean, way hey, more audience sense. interpretation, we're allowed it, to do it. I guess, but when a director basically goes, this is my intention, then... That's his intention. I right. mean, like, obviously, he got asked so many times. He's like, look, I'm just going to tell you. This is what it was. <laughs> this is what I mean. Even is. though the opposing theory is actually better, in my right. opinion. Because that would make more logical sense. Because then that, that would suggest that the hotel has a power of persuasion over, yeah. over the modern day person. Well, it feels larger that way. Well, yeah, because then it becomes a spiritual sort of seduction of evil. Mm-hmm. On the character. Whereas, Would that also make more sense to the Doctor Fear, a Doctor Sleep film being like a thing? Yeah, because it, because but like it comes, yeah, it comes back to like, like the hotel. I mean, that feels more like a Stephen King s thing, like a mystical force seducing someone to do something evil. Mm. Um, and then that plays back into the thing where I made the joke about Cam and Fever gone wrong because it sort of like plays into that sort of entrapment right. sort of yeah, style. Yeah. Because the character of Jack, if he dies and then is put in the photo it makes more sense to me than he's a reincarnation because then that goes once again how does that get wendy and dan to the the hotel mm. did this reincarnation come back to life fall in love with someone have a kid with someone then drag them back to the hotel <laughs> just so they could kill them you know what? i actually like this hotel theory as well the their um absorption theory more than the incarnation theory because i wrote a note here about how there's a lot of overhead shots yeah. Throughout the film, not you got the helicopter shots at the start with the car driving, which yeah. you can actually see the helicopter shadows and the wings like a few times. Yeah, which is still a really funny. cool shot. Oh, it's awesome! It's so cool. You yeah. can't even do that with drones because there's like a flowy motion that you just can't replicate with drones because yeah. they're so like, kind of straightforward. But there's even the top-down view of the maze, which then transitions to Jack looking. Well, it becomes more ethereal, right? Like mm. it becomes more. Well, like, it, it kind of gives you this feeling that they're being watched by the hotel. Yeah. So I kind of do like that theory. Not to mention you get that, like, yeah, that spiritual, ethereal vibe. Mm. I like it. Man, you, you're, you're struggling yeah. right now. I don't know what's happened. Your nose, but man. Anyway, yeah, I like... Uh, so that's a shame that it wasn't the other way, but I would be inclined to side more with the fan theory on this one for once. But yeah, fair enough. Absolutely. I think this film has its problems and... It has some really good scenes, but the, the highlights of this film for me are definitely its camera work and its soundtrack and mm. Nicholson's performance. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about Nicholson's performance because, like you said, it's Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Can't go wrong with him. The other two, yeah, they're... It's a kid actor. You're always going to have a gamble. It's a kid actor and a Razzie introductory sort of... <laughs> actress and uh, despite all the Kubrick stuff with that I could not tell the life of me if they were good actors or not either of them she's not yeah she's getting upset is not really acting I like that she's not Hollywood pretty yeah yeah she's got uh, a nice like the casting look. visually makes sense to me mm. um, but 
there were some scenes in there, particularly some of those scenes where she was getting upset. I was just like, is her like one da- like her one note just crying a lot? Because she cries so much. She does much. a lot in this movie. That's all and she it's, does. And it's like, yeah, sure, they were horrible to her on set. And that's not like that's not something ethically that could probably get away with nowadays. Uh, yeah, I don't want to say you can get away with it, but it's not like illegal. No, he's just been a dick. I mean, it comes it comes back to uh, I'm sure there are multiple directors that we're going to talk about that have that sort of ethical approach. Uh, I it's think like this... it's like when no one talks shit about Kevin Spacey, and then once it was cool to talk about, like people all came out of nowhere and be like, "Yeah, he I don't, did this thing I ten don't years think ago." Indie weird. directors could get away with it as much. Someone mm. like under a Kubrick name could at this point because he had built up enough steam at this to be point, like... I mean, once he did 2001, he was like unstoppable. Yeah, because then it becomes like, all right, this guy gets good performances out of a variety of cast. Mm. His methods clearly, although like on paper could be seen unethical, they get results. And that's that sort of that line. Whereas mm. like I couldn't walk onto a set and make someone cry and then that person's going to work with me again unless... I feel a little uncomfortable with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to exactly. To do that to someone. Exactly. But to, to go back to Jack Nicholson, who's not... Uh, doesn't need any sort of ulterior coaching whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I mean, some of the stuff I wanted to highlight is how there's so much range even in this film. Like, the, there's two scenes that go back-to-back, which are the complete showcase of his range. You've got the scene yeah. when he's talking to his son, um, and he's like, oh, I'm never going to hurt you. And it's just... So creepy. He is. It's so, uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. he's such on that balance. And then, literally, one scene later, he wakes up from a nightmare and he's like bawling. He's terrified. He's horrified yeah. at his dream. And it's like that's just from one switch to the other in one scene. It's like wow. Not to mention, um, uh, that's like it just like you could see the anger building and like mm. he's just. I sca- love that he starts angry. Yeah, well, this is yeah. actually, this is like, it doesn't feel unmotivated. Even his relationship mm. with Wendy feels more a relationship of convenience. He just feels like it's a going at the motions. Oh, I've got to bring the family along because I'm writing a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, he doesn't feel happy with his marriage. He loves his son, but he doesn't, he feels unhappy with his marriage. Generally. Very frustrated, yeah. Yeah. So when he gets more and more starting to slip into that darker side, she doesn't get, like, what's happening to you. Yeah, She yeah. actually just kind of def- tries to diffuse it because it feels like something she's experienced before with him. It's when it gets to the extremes that she's like, what is going on? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not trying to do, like, a... I want to talk about Wolf of Wall Street or even... um. I just had another film there. Wolf of yeah, Wall Street's a good example, though. But like, Somebody who goes from this clean person to this... Yeah, American dip- Beauty. That was the one I was thinking of, too. Yeah. Where they ver- they start off very meek or small or clean, and then they completely transform throughout the duration. This is different. He's al- You're right. He's already in this aggravated state. He's yeah. already annoyed at his wife, his son. He's sort of... You, know, you, he get, loves a, you son, get it but... in the car ride when they're driving up, exactly. and he's like... You know, his son's like, oh, I'm hungry. He's like, well, you should have eaten your breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, we'll get something. And you can see he's almost like, he's just like... Yeah, he's like, don't talk to him like that. Like You've got to be yeah. harder on him, that kind of yeah. attitude. I thought it was very clever. So yeah, you're right, it. the transformation is easier to miss from her perspective. Yeah, because it's like, 
I mean, there are films that sort of have like that demonic possession thing, and characters immediately know a personality change yep. in a character, and and in this one, because of their previous relationship, it makes the development a little bit more subtle. Mm. To the point where the only time she really starts to question stuff is when he hits her. He hits his, the son. Right, yeah. So, mm. Wait, uh, Did he actually hit his son or not? No, but that was like yeah, the accusatory right. sort of like that was the first big red flag. And the fact he doesn't really immediately defend himself. No. He just looks she's... horrifying. That's a great scene. And even the wides in that He's scene. so scary. It's like you can... You know what's funny? It's like, wouldn't you have loved to have seen a Joker film with, like, that version of Jack Nicholson? Like, our modern-day Joker film, but with Jack Nicholson. Right, with him allowed to go full sort of... Not, not cartoony. Not, not, yeah, not the cartoon one he played in the 80s. I'm talking, like, the Joaquin Joker, but put that on that Jack age. Nicholson, yeah. Jack Nicholson, That would be... And I then, think that'd be scarier than Joaquin. And then have that directed by Kubrick. Oh, my God. <laughs> be scary. Um, all right, well, I want to talk a bit about... Um, before we get into highlight scenes, I guess, I would like to talk a bit more about sort of the incarnations of this film. As I mentioned earlier, there's multiple cuts. Yep. Uh, and there was actually a 4K uh, restoration not that long ago, actually. Look at that. So, uh, what am I looking at? Right, so how how I mentioned I saw an, a shorter cut than you did. I think what happened is the cut you might have saw was the one that first hit theaters, and then after it premiered, Kubrick fa- very famously made even more cuts and actually shortened it and shortened it and shortened it. And I think it actually ended up being about 27 minutes shorter uh, by the time that it got like a wider release and people were watching yeah. it, which is interesting. Now, the original 35mm negative has had its 4K restoration for the Cannes Film Festival just this year, the 2019 Cannes Festival. Is it because it's been 40 years? Uh, it's Yeah, it would be yeah, 40th anniversary, yeah. Well, I think it was 80, 1980. Yeah, but so like you include the year 80, you're right, I guess. It's coming up close, I guess, at that point. And the, it was the 146-minute version that was restored. So I guess that would be like the full length version. But yeah, that was uh Fair enough. Do you want to move into uh highlight scenes? I am very happy to do that, sir. Uh I mean I got one. I wonder but, which one this is. <laughs> uh I've got two actually that okay. I really liked. Like we talked about, I really liked the bathroom scene and that entire sequence. Uh, I love the oh, first that was You mean with the creepy looking What bathroom scene are you talking about? Oh the um I know which one you're talking about now. What the fuck was that? The seduction of... That was the wife getting killed oh, in the bathtub. So that's right. the original I'm massacre. An I'm an idiot. Chick. But uh, that's... That was terrifying. That was actually legitimately terrifying. Uh, I'm talking about the the first reveal of the hotel, uh, Golden Room. Like, uh, okay. that leads into the spillage and then the reveal that he is the caretaker. Yep, yep, yep. That stuff was creepy... It was building stakes to a fever pitch, and it was a scene that I really <laughs> liked because the chemistry between Nicholson and I'm gonna get the name of the other guy because he was also really good. The caretaker, the, the bartender, the... Philip Stone. Philip Stone, that's Delbert a cool name. Grady, that's a cool name. Oh, yeah, Grady. Yeah, we'll talk about Grady. Who was actually in uh, the Temple of Doom? Oh. and a Clockwork Orange. Oh, so oh, that's, I don't know what and that And Flash was. Gordon, apparently. Yay, Flash Gordon. Go <laughs> Ted. Um, so, yeah, um, really like that scene. But the other the other scene, I'm going to throw it over to you because I think you might have the highlight scene. Um, I've put it in my, like, mentioned. It's okay. probably not my highlight scene, but obviously we're talking about the axe scene. No. No. No, I'm talking about What's your the, highlight? the 
that stairwell scene. Oh, as right, she, right, right. As she's going up the stairs and she's of crying course, and he's... It's all like a one long shot. It is a really long take and it's... I love the cut to the side wide of the stairs. Just, like, he just keeps slowly encroaching and it's just all Nicholson in that scene. I'm going to bash your fucking head. Oh, my oh, God. So I'm so scared. <laughs> so good. You know, if you go on... You know how they're doing like those face swap videos on YouTube yeah. and stuff? They've done one with Jim Carrey in that role and it's like... It's scary how like his face perfectly. Fits I could buy Jack Jim Nicholson's. Carrey in this. Yeah, even with this, like the hair, sort of the extended. Uh, there's something in Nicholson's eyebrows that I've mm. like I've always known. Like his eyebrow expression is. It's the same thing with Jim Carrey. Actually, it's both in their eyebrows. It's the way they like can raise them so high mm. and contour them down to give that frown or that psychotic sort of unhingedness. It's it's. Can be like it can walk that line between comical. It's like a fictionalized horror, which works perfectly in the context of this film. But because I feel like this film, you know, this film probably would have worked better. Like sometimes I feel like it would have worked better if it was more a psychological horror, which it sort of is. In but, ways, it is. I but agree. it's a more mystical. Like it's more that fantasy Stephen King. It's There's... got that Stephen King touch, which I actually think kind of. Takes away from a bit. the film. Okay. Yeah, because I would have loved the fact that he's hallucinating. Like the the spiritual influence, I like, but I like the fact of him just going so crazy that he starts to like bring the world around him to mm. life because he does suffer a severe case of like a mental breakdown. Well, just that stuff with the, the filled out bar is yeah. like such a great demonstration. Where of he's that. like, I want a drink. He manifests a drink. It kind of comes back to things, little things like like those other films. Something that, else. Let, where they do that manifestation stuff, mm. you know? Like, you already talked about Swiss Army Man earlier in the show. Like, mm. it's cool. Fictionalizing, like, manifestations and such. So, yeah. Ooh, different tone than Swiss Army Man, but. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> but, yeah. Nah, def- um, that is, I completely forgot that is, yeah, such an iconic. That might even be almost as iconic as the act scene. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know if I would call that my highlight. I obviously would. No, nah, the problem is because that one gets used so much. It's it like, is overly used in him, and and that's the thing. He used, I think Jack Nicholson used to be some sort. But of we just used it at the start of the show, so <laughs> <laughs> that's true. We used to be a firefighter, so he knew how to take that door down with like as many as little hits as Dude, possible. Dude, I wouldn't want that guy carrying me out of building. <laughs> <laughs> he is Johnny. So, oh man, so iconic, and so... They even her scream. And I, I remember watching it, and I, I forgot how this ends because most like. Scissor reels, they cut it off before she swings the knife at him yeah. in his hand. So I kind of forgot. I was like, oh, that's right. And then how does she get out? Oh, yeah, she cuts his hand and just runs, doesn't she? Oh, no, he he, he thinks goes, she's climbing out the window, so he leaves. Yeah, and then he and proceeds to go after. In the maze, yeah. yeah. That was very tense because I didn't know how it ended. So yeah, so I was like, "Oh wow, this is so cool." Uh, that sequence, um, that would be another sequence. That that is a very tense scene in the snow. Yeah, yeah, and I think I really wish I'd watched this film before Doctor Sleep was announced because I would have probably been more like, because it, it's impossible to switch your brain off to the fact that right, yeah, boys in the the boys in the sequel. Oh right, that the so boys. So I be watched alive. this film in like 2010 before any sort of remnants of Doctor Sleep was going to come out. I feel like I would have enjoyed that gotcha, ending gotcha. a little bit better, but it's like comes back to knowing what I know now that this film only recently came out too. So yeah, it's, like, it's a it's probably still in theaters even if you like went to look for it. 
Yeah, exactly. So, what about you, Jake? Um, I guess my I I what I wrote down as my highlight scene. And I guess it's sort of interchangeable. Again, the scene when he's talking to his son, promising to never hurt him, um, and then that leading right into the uh, him having that breakdown from his nightmare. Yeah. Right? Like, just that sort of juxtaposition of having those two scenes right next to each other. I was like, that's so genius. And um, I, I don't know. I think I like that. I also forgot to mention, because you talked about the soundtrack of this film or the, the sound I design. I want to buy rather. the soundtrack. That was, one of the, that was literally probably my favorite part of the film. I was like... Damn. I was like, I, want to, I wanted to see some sort of footage on them trying to assemble the soundtrack. That I know would be like, cool as well. His soundtracks have always been pretty good, but... Like Kubrick's ones have always mm. been like noticeably good, but this one was like, <laughs> oh, man. I think I think I prefer the A Clockwork Orange soundtrack. Just a I've little got, bit I've more. I haven't listened to that one. I've really got to watch so, it. So you'll listen to me like, oh man, this is cool. But yeah. it is it is sort of iconic in its own way. I wanted to point out that scene when he's he's got Ryder's block he can't type, and he's throwing the the tennis ball against the wall. And just to talk about if that contribution to the to soundtrack or the sound design, rather, I was just like, man, this is really... That was like my click moment when I was like, ooh, this sound design's really cool. Yeah. The way the ball's bouncing, like the, the size of the room. Again, he's authoritarian well, it's camera a, It's a perfect awesome. balance between bits where it's just diegetic sounds. Mm. Like I remember when the kid's like particularly doing a lot of his like tricycling around. It's a oh, lot yeah. of just acoustic. Coming off and on the carpet. Yeah, and it's like, it's awesome because it's like, and especially when you listen to like the behind the scenes stuff, a lot mm-hmm. of that stuff probably was Foley work. That would have to be Foley because he's got a giant crew running behind yeah, him. Yeah, and also is, <laughs> not to mention the director is basically shouting every instruction to Danny right, Lloyd. yeah. So. Yeah, he got a lot of um, on-camera direction, that one. He's Go in here, now do this. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. So. But, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, if you want to watch this film in room number 237 and drink some red rum while you're doing it, then there you go. No dramas. Well, <laughs> yep, shining down wide release. Go there check it go. out. DVD, Blu-ray, the Canadian version of Netflix. Yeah, get a VPN. <laughs> uh, there you go. Beautiful. No worries. That uh, was The Shining. Yeah, good classic. stuff, bud. Good, good stuff. stuff. Preferred Full Metal Jacket. Mm, preferred A Clockwork Orange. And Doctor Strange Love. Which is why, like, in hindsight, I think this was the Zeke Morgan hindsight. Ah, uh, you stole it back from me. <laughs> is an interesting choice that we picked. But I guess it's the 40th anniversary, so. Yeah, we're coming up. I mean, Almost. this is the last episode of the, the decade leading to, yeah, you're at the 40th anniversary in 1980 into 2020. Crazy. So, Jake, yeah, what's crazy. new in cinemas this week? Right. So, I'm going to have to do this for <clears throat> each preceding week that, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. What's going on, man? Uh, that these are subject to change because these are archival recordings. So things may change in bibs and bops by the time we get up to the week of releases. But what I've got here is Spies in Disguise, which is some sort of animation thing. I don't know. I don't know. Cute. Cute. I don't know. Uh, Little Women comes out as well. I think it finally gets its wide release on the 1st or 2nd of January. Yep. Um, And I just checked recently. It should be out in Australia on the 1st, so... I'll probably catch that soon just because I know it's going to be a big deal at the Academy. Uh, and The Gentleman, which is the McConaughey film uh, by, I think it's Guy Ritchie directing. Guy Ritchie. Another one of those films. So, yeah. You like Rock and Roller? You like Snatch? You like Two Lock, Stock and you Two like Smoking Barrels? 
You like British people talking about a lot of plots? Ah. And this is the ah. film for you. You just you basically did that whole film in that half an episode. <laughs> yeah, basically. Well, uh, we're not watching yeah. any of those next week, Jake. No, we're watching something a little older. What are we watching? Uh, next week on the show, we're watching Moonrise Kingdom. Where's the boy? I'm told that he's just been struck by lightning. It's true. I'll be out back. I'm going to find a tree to chop down. Sam, a 12-year-old orphan, falls in love with Susie and the two run away to a secluded cove on an island, prompting the entire town to begin the search. I've got cove here. I don't know if it's meant to say cave. Or cove. Cove. Did I say cove? What did I say? You know what? I'm going to Google it. Is it C-O-V-E? It's an O, but I want to see if the actual description, if I Google it right now, is an A. Does it say C-O? Yeah, it's C-O. Okay. V-E? I said it correctly. It's C-O. C-O-V-E. V-E? So that's cove. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I wasn't sure if I was meant to say cave, but... No, I was correct. No, it's a cove, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It's a pretty sure cove. This film yeah, was directed yeah. by Wes Anderson. We like our Wes Anderson, as you heard me earlier in the show, citing him as one of my films of the decade with Isla Dogs. There you go. Moonrise Kingdom will be an interesting watch. Mm. Well, we did Bottle Rocket back in episode 20. We did. That director's corner over there. Yes. Which is such a weird one to do, especially because that was the only film I had seen of his. But so now, oh, now you've seen a few. Now I've seen a fantastic few. Fantastic. So, and Isla Dogs, Dogs the, the animated. Life which Aquatic. I, yeah, yeah, Life Aquatic. Uh, we've got Moonrise Kingdom now. We're going yeah. to talk about that. So I've seen a fair few of these films. Oh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Of course. Of but course. Um, that's probably the most recent one I saw. So this actually. will be your sixth film from him. Something like that. I've seen more than half now. So well, No worries. Well, yeah. we'll catch. Uh, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show thank podcast. Thank you very much, everybody. We love you so much. I, <laughs> sorry, I just wanted to ruin your no, that's fair. your pace. Fifty man, fifty episodes. Fifty episodes. We're celebrating half a century. Yep. What, but Christopher. Oh. No, you're right. It is half a century. No, it's not. Yeah, it is. Fifty. Those are, are weeks, not years. Oh well. How dare you? Thank you for joining us for the Cinema Side Show podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Moonrise Kingdom oh. in the oh. new decade. I can't believe this, man. <laughs>